Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Craig Parkinson and this is the Two Shot Podcast. Pop the kettle on and grab your seat. You sit comfortably, then let's dive in. Hello. You, you, you remember? Hello. Look, we've just had a little break. We've all needed it, have we? But I'll tell you what, it's so nice to be back. Just, um, just to let you know, I'm full of hay fever. It's not a great way to kick off season ten, is it? But yeah, I am. So forgive me. What's been going on? Have you been well? Have you been keeping yourself? nice and healthy and happy i tell you what in the uk at the moment the weather is beautiful it's making everybody a lot happier um i hope wherever you are whatever you're doing you're well and things are going good and guess what it's going to get better because the two shot podcast is back yes for season 10 can you believe it's season 10 my god um that sounded terrible, but I'm actually really excited. It's really good to be back. Um, and have we got some guests for you? Yes, yes, we have. It wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't. It would just be me rambling. Uh, we don't want that. So, what to tell you? Do you like the new theme music? The the I say new, it's still there, but the remix is great. The new artwork for the socials is brilliant from Stan Chow. Basically, what we've done, we've had a bit of uh, a renovation. It's the same, but a little bit shinier. A little bit polished. Kind of. Do you know what I mean? I hope you're enjoying it. I hope... uh, Oh, also, look, welcome to any new listeners. Uh, I know there's been lots... And you are very welcome here. Come and join the community. Because we are a community. We've built this up for just over five years. It's going all right, isn't it? We all get on. We've had no squabbles, no falling outs. It's a very kind place. Um, where we sit down each week and we talk to a creative soul. And it's, you know, for new listeners, it, if... Uh, Uh, let's just say, for instance, actors are coming on. They're not here to talk about their new projects. We're here to sort of dissect and get to the bones of who they are, because that's what's important. That's what we can all relate to. Um, And it just so happens that we're kicking off season 10 with an actor. Now, there are two shows on television right now that everyone's talking about one is on disney plus and it's called pistol 
It's directed by the legend himself, Mr. Danny Boyle. And it stars this week's guest. But not only is she in that, she's also in BBC's Much Talked About and Much Loved from what I've been hearing on the radio and certain reviews. Thank you, Boyd Hilton and the Pilot TV podcast for giving everything I know about love, a lot of love. Uh, If you've read the book by the majestic Dolly Alderton, this is adapted by her and it's glorious and it stars today's guest, Emma Appleton. She is just lovely and chatty. Um, Just to let you know, you know I don't really talk about my work that much uh, because it's not that podcast, is it? Uh, but I did work with Emma on everything I know about love, and uh, I just found her absolutely adorable. She's great company, very easy company, as you'll hear from this chat. And I couldn't think of anyone better to kick off season 10. Season 10, that still shocks me. Uh, of the Two Shot Podcast, then Emma Appleton. So look, grab your brew, fluff your pillows, get comfy. And let's dive in to season 10 of the Two Shot Podcast with the brilliant Emma Appleton. You enjoy. I'll see you at the end. Now, Emma, the last time we saw each other, we'd taken a lot of ecstasy (laughs) and we were on a cobbled street in Liverpool trying to dodge torrential rain. And if you haven't seen Everything I Know About Love, uh, all episodes available now on the BCI player, that will make no sense. That's going to be an epic headline, though. (laughs) How how have you been since that fateful day? (laughs) So good. I feel like it's been such a blur, to be honest, because that was back in... When was that? I don't know. October, maybe? Yeah. I Something think it was around. the back end of the year, yeah. Um, so, obviously, filmed the rest of the show until December, and then it was Christmas, and I went away for a bit, and then it's just been this mad press time, um, which I haven't really done before. I kind of forgot that if you make shows, you then have to go and talk about them when you've made them. Well, that's the, that's the thing that I always um, say, that the job only ends when you're on this morning or you're talking to the reporters and they go, oh, and they ask you questions and you go, I've no idea because it was like a year ago and I, I, I just can't think, what is my character called? I, I've done a few more jobs luckily since then and uh, everything's a blur, isn't it? Yeah, exactly that. And I think when you are working at such a quick rate as well, your brain is, you're like a USB stick. You're constantly kind of just deleting stuff as you're going on so you can just keep, doing the scenes and learning the lines. So when you finished it, I mean, I could remember about, what, three days out of the whole five months? Um, yeah. And it's like you need to go back and, and study it. I might start keeping a diary on my later job. So then basically I've done my homework by the time I get around to press. Have you ever kept a diary in real life? In real life. <laughs> I mean, when, when you were, maybe when you were younger. I really tried. I think I had... 
like an idea that I would start, I would put pen to paper and it would just be like absolute genius <laughs> going onto the page. Um, <clears throat> and it was just very, very self-indulgent. And I got bored quite quickly. Because I wasn't, I mean, you know, grew up in the Cotswolds just going to school and seeing my mates. So it was like, oh, I went to one stop today. Yeah, waited for the bus. Wait There's only the one bus. an hour in yeah. the countryside. Mom well, let's go back because I I do want to talk about uh, acting, but I do want to talk about modelling as well. But let's go back. You touched on there about growing up in the countryside. Was it was it in Oxfordshire? Yeah, yeah. How how was that for you? Because it's it's because I I've lived because I used to live in Gloucestershire. And it's a very, it's a very different way of life. Obviously, I wasn't growing up there. I was going there as kind of an adult. Um, But going from Camden and going to the Cotswolds, I mean, wow, it's so different. But growing up there, you obviously you didn't know. Did you know anything else? Well, that's the thing. Like I did, I didn't know any different. But I kind of always thought, wait, there must be more than this. I remember going into Oxford Town Centre on the weekends and being like, wow, this is cinema, like, this is really cool. And there's, like, a (laughs) department store. Um, It was pretty epic. Um, But all my friends were there, so I kind of didn't want to be anywhere else, you know. It was just, it was exactly what I knew, but it was very... I remember watching This Country for the first time when it came out, and I was like, they've absolutely hit the nail on the head. Like, hanging out at the Buttercross just talking about, I don't know, someone's nan that you saw in Sainsbury's. <laughs> I mean, they just had all the material on the doorstep, didn't they? I mean, they really... I, remember, I didn't live not too far away from, from where Charlie and Daisy filmed that. Um, and if anybody wants to listen, Charlie Cooper has been on this podcast, so do go back and listen. It's a very good episode. Uh, but it's not about Charlie Cooper, it's about you, Emma. It's funny, isn't it, growing up in... In the countryside, because my son was born there and now splits his time between the countryside and the city. So he kind of gets a bit of everything, really. And then when me or his mum take him into London, then it goes up another level, you know. Um, But was it a happy time in the countryside growing Um up? Most of the time, no, it was because, you know, I grew up in such, like, an idyllic place. I had my friends around. They lived around the corner. It was the days where you could, like, run around and play outside. And yeah. the, the classic days everyone talks about, you didn't text each other. You'd be like, right, I'm going to knock on your door at 5 p.m. We're going to play for a bit. And then you'd run home and have dinner and be like, I'll meet you back here in 30 minutes. And you just have to be there. Um, so I think... I think I definitely do look at it in like slightly rose tinted glasses as well, where like it was just every day was a summer day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny because sometimes you may be, you know, not saying you, but one might not appreciate it as as a child. But then as an adult, you go back and you go, this is just perfection. This is kind of exactly what I need. I don't care that there's no buses. Mm. I love that there's no traffic and I like the peace and I like the quiet. But then again, I'm a, I'm a 46-year-old man, so that's <laughs> kind of what I want. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think hindsight's, you know, a beautiful thing in that respect. Um, and I've got so much appreciation for it as I've grown older, which 
I really, I really enjoy. And it makes me love going home and seeing my family because I do love having the best of both worlds, being able to live in London and have this world. And then, you know, like this weekend, I'm like, I can just jump on a train for an hour and go back and sit in my parents' garden, which backs onto a field. And I mean, you can hear the A40 sometimes, so not super relaxing, but (laughs) you can pretend that it's, you know, Look, it's, it's better than just, like, the bombardment of, like, Camden High Street or the Edgware Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can, London can get quite intense and it's nice to just go back. And also I feel like it triggers a lot of memories. When I walk through the high street, I'm like, God, my friends, we used to drink there when we were underage or we used to, like, you know, um, go and see films at, you know, the place where they had the... Was that they had the projection screen? That's what we had. It was a corn exchange. We didn't have a cinema for ages. Uh, you know, all the best places have got corn exchange. Exactly. I don't even know what a corn exchange does. Nobody knows. <laughs> That's just where you meet and where you hang out and occasionally cause a bit of trouble. Yeah. yeah, that's it. So, how was school for you? What was the what was was there a plan at school? No. Um, my parents were lucky if they could get me into school. Um, <laughs> I really didn't like going from the first day, actually. I remember being excited to go and then I got there and my brain just went, no, no, I don't fancy this. Um, and it basically carried on that way. Really? Um, for the whole of school. Yeah, I just never quite <laughs> acclimatised to it. I think the structure didn't suit me, which is so silly because as a kid, it's like that you just go to school, you hang out with your friends, you got your packed lunch, you learn interesting things, you play outside, like, you know, really what is there to be fussy about. And also and I, children need structure. Absolutely. And routine. Um, yeah. And I just, I just didn't like it. And it made me feel incredibly anxious. Um pretty much the whole whole way through. There were a few classes I really liked going to. Anything creative, like English and drama and stuff where I was kind of using my imagination. Um, but if yeah. it was anything that um, had a very specific formula, science, maths, I just didn't, didn't get along did with you, it. Did you, did you just switch off? Uh, and were you sort of, were you a bit of a daydreamer? You don't um, strike me as somebody who would have caused trouble, or maybe you were. I don't know. I, no, I, I was terrified of getting in trouble. Absolutely terrified of getting in trouble. So it wasn't that. I think it was, on reflection, I think I got it in my head really early that I wasn't very good and that I was a bit stupid when it came to maths and stuff. And right. that kind of gave me the fear of like, well, I just, this isn't for me and I'm scared that if I try and keep getting it wrong and they're going to realise that I'm a bit of an idiot. So I think it was, I think it was that a lot of the time. Well, it's that thing as well when, you know, you know the answer to the question, but you're terrified to put your hand up in class just in case you've got it wrong. And then they call the answer out and you go, I knew it, I should have put my hand Mm. up. But we don't, you know, as children, as some children, we don't really grow and learn from that. We just sort of get scared and shut our mouth. Yeah. Because, oh, well, maybe we don't feel as... Did you feel supported then by the teachers? Um, oh, I mean, my memory's quite hazy. I th- Yeah, I definitely remember there being really good teachers, but then I remember being very aware 
very hyper aware of teachers that weren't very supportive and I took it incredibly personally I kind of very much absorbed that um and it was yeah it was always a strange mix actually between teachers that were either super supportive and those were all the classes that I would do better in and then you get I remember a teacher that was like look if you just don't know the put your hand up and then in class I put my hand up she'd be like well you obviously weren't listening (laughs) it's like I'm so confused I'm getting all of these mixed signals and how did you get on with authority and I only say that because I I certainly had trouble with authority figures really but then but then again it's not about me (laughs) I want to know more about that, Craig. I'll tell you when we're not recording. (laughs) Um, I was quite scared of authority. I think I was very, I I think I was scared of being disliked by adults. So I didn't want to be trouble or I didn't want to get in trouble because I didn't like being told off. I didn't like being shouted at. That just put Uh absolute fear of God into me. Um. So, yeah, I just kind of felt, um, I think, quite uneasy around authority figures. I think I wanted them to like me. <laughs> do, you, do you still feel that now with people? Do you feel that there's a thing about, I mean, you know, I think all actors kind of <laughs> do want to be liked. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's really odd because, you know, we kind of want that and then you go into a business that is so unforgiving and so brutal, it's hard not to take rejection personally. It's strange, isn't it? But then I wonder if we do it for the kind of, the the thrill of the extremes of it. So yes, we do experience the rejection. But on the flip side, when you get a job or you're getting praise for having done a part or a, a show or a film that does well, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. And then you're like, well, this is you know, absolute validation. <laughs> so then don't know what like that says that, about us. It, it, it all disappears and you go back yeah. to square one. Now, with, as an actor, we know, or, you know, people listen to this, maybe they don't. So with an audition, we go into a room, or certainly we used to go into a room with a prepared script. We meet a director, we meet a producer, we meet a casting director. And we would audition, we would read the part and go, look, this is my starting point, uh, this is what I think I can do in it, and this is my spin, what do you think? And together you would work on forming a character, certainly the starting block of a character. As a model, are people just looking at your photo and then looking at you? Or do you, you is it that thing where you're carrying your book around? I, this is a, open the, open the world of modelling to me. How did it all start, Emma? Because I, I don't know anything. Okay, well, what is it, where does it start for me personally? Absolutely, yeah. I had a friend that said her then boyfriend had just qualified as a hairdresser and had to do a, a hair presentation. And she said, do you want to get your hair cut for 70 quid? And they'll take some photos. And I was like, uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, and that is literally how it started. I never knew how big the hair industry was. I was started out as a hair model which basically means just having your hair cut and doing shows presentations photo shoots because you get all these massive Bratton Tony and Guy Sassoon um that do you know all these presentations in global campaigns so I started doing that and then I got a modeling agent so I didn't want to go 
to uni or drama school. I didn't really know what to do. And my parents were like, no, we don't mind what you do, but you've got to do something. You seem yeah. to be enjoying doing these bits of modelling. Why don't you sign up with an agency and see how it goes? Um, so that's what I did, basically. And then, yeah, you walk around with your book, you go to castings. Sometimes you go to, like, 15 castings a day. Could you imagine if we had 15 auditions today? I mean, that would be a different thing, but absolutely insane. Bonkers. Um, but you essentially... But what does it entail? So you would go... Say say you had, like, 10 or 15 uh, meetings a day. You would go in with your book, which is all... Is it past jobs that you would put in there or...? Yeah, so test shoots where you would basically do a shoot. You wouldn't get paid for it. Um, it would just be a shoot for free with the photographer to, like, build up your portfolio um, and then other jobs that you had done. So kind of like your best work in the book. So you walk around with a pair of heels in your bag because you have to go and put a pair of heels on. Um, walk in. And sometimes you just know, like, as soon as you put your head down the door, they would just go, oh... <laughs> and it's <laughs> quite brutal and then yeah you just go in give them your book they'd have a look through they might ask you to walk up and down they might take a few photos of you you might have a chat I think it, it was so dependent on the brand casting director whoever was in the room if they wanted to see your personality basically um because some jobs I did they were like can you dance do do a dance or just have a conversation to see how you would be in the room and what you would kind of bring to the set. And then other times it was just like, yeah, you're not tall enough, you're not thin enough, you haven't got the right face or you haven't got the right hair. or And there's nothing you can really do about that. But you, I suppose, am I right in saying you're just learning on the job as a model? Yeah. Because... So what kind of what kind of things actually what kind of things were you getting wrong at first? I didn't know how to I kind of knew how to pose but not how to work with a camera. I don't know it's such a weird thing to actually describe. I remember my first proper photo shoot with my agency and I worked with a really wonderful photographer and um he was directing me basically. Um, and I was just, you know, following his instructions and figuring out what was working for the camera. Um, but apart from that, I mean, it's all the day-to-day stuff of just like, how are you on set? How do you cheat people? And I think that's part of your personality or it's, or it's not. And were, cause you are tall. Correct. So I'm presuming that went, (laughs) that went for you. And would that have been, would you have gone on to do catwalk modelling then? How does that work? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's weird. The thing about modelling is it's such a genetic lottery. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, Yeah. And there are even some models that aren't very tall. I think it's just who they, who an agency ends up liking and who brands want to book. Um, but I did get offered some catwalk stuff. I remember my first agency were like, right, so do you want to go to Paris and live in a model house and do all of these millions of castings a day for Paris Fashion Week? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you just described my idea of hell because, uh, you know, modelling was a job for me, but it wasn't my passion. And the idea of going to do that, I was like, nope, 
no, thank you. I just it just didn't appeal to me uh, whatsoever. I mean, you do hear one hears quite dark tales of of being a model. Did it ever? Did it ever get to a point for you where you felt like you were uncomfortable? You wanted to step away from it. I think it got to a point. Yeah, I think I wanted to step away from it for a while as I got towards the end. I knew it was never the thing that I was desperate to do. It wasn't my passion. Um, It wasn't creatively fulfilling for me because that is just not the role of the job. Um, So, yeah. At the moment, it kind of sounds like it, it, it happened a bit by accident really yeah. with the hair modeling and then it seems that you're in a bit of a state of limbo about what to do even though you did mention acting before so I'm, I'm guessing acting was was bubbling and it was on the cards at some point but at that moment and you were how how young were you at this point uh what when i kind of made the change um no kind of when you started when you started from going from the hair modeling to to get oh amazing, like 18 17 right okay so when you wanted to step away from it was there a a clear road that you wanted to go down because you couldn't sort of jump from one ship to something else were you thinking were you thinking i'm gonna give the acting a go it wasn't even that it was kind of uh the opportunity was presented to me and only when it was presented i was like this is the life raft I jump on <laughs> to right. get away from modelling. I don't think I realised how kind of desperate I was to to finish it because at the end of it, I was doing I was doing a lot of fitting modelling, which is basically you stand seven hours and you're a mannequin. You're like a life mannequin that people yeah spin things to. And don't get me wrong, there are many harder jobs in the world, but it was just dull. It was so dull and I got to the point where I was like, surely I can do more than this? Like, surely I'm a bit more capable um, and I'm not using my, like, you know, potential, as it were. And that's the time where I got the audition for Dreamlands, the short film, through my modelling agency. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, "This, this is it. Like, I just have to do this. So this came through your modelling agency? Yeah. So how was that presented to you? Uh, they just sent it in an email and they were like, oh, this is an audition for a short film. I was like, excellent. Went in, did an audition, got the job. And then <laughs> my modelling agency called me and they were like, uh, amazing news, you've you've booked the short film. And I was like, incredible. And they were like, the thing is, um, we just don't think it's for you. <laughs> And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? And they were like, yeah, because, like, you're working with all these other brands and, and you've got jobs with them. And I'm just, I just don't think this acting thing is going to be for you. And that's the first time I kind of stood up for myself in that world and was like, uh, there's absolutely no way I'm not doing this. Like, I don't care what you think. I'll do it, you know, not for you. I'm like, I just, I have to do this. Yeah. And how was that? Because that was was that your first time in front of a camera? I mean, for, for uh, as an actor. 
I mean, I had done, <laughs> I did a Fangipan advert once, uh, which was potentially my first kind of, you know, taste of acting um, in front of some cameras. Uh, but no, I mean, in terms of what I would call like proper, proper experience. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, that was my first, first proper time. And so learning on the job as a model is one thing, but learning on the job as an actor, especially on a short film where, I mean, time's always of the essence anyway, but on a short film, there's little time, Mm. there's little budget, so you can't really afford to be making too many mistakes. So how how did you find that first step? Um, Absolutely exhilarating and terrifying. I remember us being sat in this cafe on the beachfront in Margate, and I was sat there before the cameras were about to roll on the first scene. And this, like, my inner monologue was just like, what are you doing? How, like, what are you going to do? How's this going to go? Are you just, are any words going to come out of your mouth? Are you going to say all the words backwards? Like, maybe you're just going to be really shit. Um, and luckily, our director, Sarah Dunlop, I think she wanted to work with people who, well, she obviously wanted to work with people who hadn't really had any experience and just to yeah. kind of see, organically what would happen and we started doing the scene and she'd just keep the camera running and rolling and rolling and rolling and she'd keep giving us kind of notes and stuff but it felt like she really got the best out of us by the more we said it obviously the more you say something the more relaxed you get and then you stop thinking about the words that you're saying and you're just in the moment and being present so that for me was the best way best possible way of learning it sounds to me that even though you're stepping into the world of acting now, it was quite a secure place to be as a model. You were working with lots of brands. Uh, financially, things were coming in. That was nice. That's a very comfortable, nice lifestyle. There's nothing to stop you sort of carrying on from that, even though, yeah, as you say, you're not creatively fulfilled. So to step away from all that and turn your back on it, to walk the tightrope of rejection as an actor, that's quite a scary move. Mm, I think I I don't think I was scared. I think I was so ready for something new and for something I've been so kind of desperate to do and so ready for. Um And I'd spent, you know, the past 10 years being rejected in that job. So the rejection part didn't bother me at all. I was used to that. Um, And I was just, I was just so ready to kind of like use my brain and use my imagination and to have a go at a new set of skills. And I think I quite enjoy the not knowing if you're going to be any good because that in a way doesn't matter, like, you can't spend, I don't think you spend too much time thinking, am I going to be good or am I going to be bad? It's like, no, you just need to have a go and see what happens. Yeah, I I mean, we can waste a lot of time overthinking things, can't we? I love to do that. Oh, (laughs) the the doubts are always there. That that never goes away, does it? So what was the next step for you then after the short film? So you've decided, yes, this is the path for me. I'm going to give this a go because, you know... It doesn't matter. I've got to. I've got to be creative in some way. Mm. And standing up for seven hours and having things pinned on you really doesn't sound like it's there, does it? 
just wasn't quite cutting it for me. And like you said, there was a stability in the fact that normally in a modeling life, you don't have a nine to five. And in a way that that was, and I had like replete clients who were really, really lovely, but I just, you know, there had to be something more. And I was really lucky that, well, I did the short film on the short film. I had this revelation of like, I have to keep doing this. Like I just knew it was the right thing to be doing, but didn't yeah. really know how. And then the next year I got a text from director Sarah and she was like, um, so the short film has been accepted to Cannes Film Festival, which was unbelievable. Because I was like, this could have been something that we made and we loved, but no one is ever really going to see it. Or you just don't know with a short film, do you? Of, of course you don't. I mean, nine times out of ten, they'll, they'll do the festival circuit, not necessarily something as prestigious as the Cannes Film Festival, but they'll do lots of short, short film festivals around uh, the UK and Scotland and Wales. Mm. So it's very rare that people see them, certainly even rarer for it to go to Cannes. Yeah, I just feel like we got so... And not just luck, there was so much talent um, and work and effort that went into it, but to be in competition in, in the short film category category it can was an unbelievable platform to then jump off of because obviously managers and agents and people watch that stuff um so that's how I ended up meeting my agent Molly um and I did a meeting with her and she said okay why don't you just do some auditions for fun because I was trying to be as realistic as possible as well because I was like maybe I just did a short film and that's the only thing I was kind of good at like who knows where this is going to go? And I really wanted to be realistic about it. And um, I did an audition and then she came in. She was like, well, you've got the job. So do you want to maybe sign with us? Um, so it felt like all these things kind of fell into place. Yeah, they really did. At the did. right time. How were your modelling agents when you said, uh, oh, adios? Um... <laughs> <laughs> considering they were the ones that presented this short film and then went, actually, we don't think you should do it. Yeah, it was a bit of a messy ending. Um, <laughs> but I, I, at that point, I think the amazing thing about doing that first short film is it gave me a new sense of confidence and a sense of self I hadn't had before. And right. it gave me, I kind of just, kind of gave me a little bit of power and not in a, like an egotistical way but of just being like no I am right about I need to trust myself I need to trust my gut and I know this is what I need to be doing and if I'm with an agency that I just don't feel like this relationship is working anymore with the direction I want to go in I'm happy to leave that behind like I knew I knew it was time for it to finish so I just yeah I just started trusting myself a bit more which was like the best thing I ever did (laughs) Yeah, and also it's hard because you're also gaining strength as a person. It's not egotistical, but you have to sort of, you know, I've spoken about this before, but you you have to build up your suit of armour ready to sort of, you know, kind of go into battle. Yeah. Because it's not going to be easy and it doesn't, doesn't really get easier. You just kind of take the hits and the hits hurt a little bit less. Yeah, you kind of just get used to it, don't you? Like it becomes... Sadly, yeah. <laughs> you you normalise it. Um, and I think we all kind of find our ways of of navigating it. Um, but yeah, I just think I, th- I was so ready. 
I think it's all about that, isn't it? It's all about constant navigation. Um, but being prepared and being strong for yeah. it. Yeah. And the thing is as well, what I realised was as soon as you start doing it, it gets easier and easier. Like as soon as you kind of jump off that cliff or whatever or put that first bit of armour on, you're like, oh, oh, well, if I can do that, then what's the next step? Um, and it's just like it's that repetition or that um, that kind of positive progress where you're constantly proving to yourself, oh, well, I should trust myself and I should just keep yeah you know, progressing. But I think it's very, for someone who's, who's just started out in the business after that short film, a very realistic way of saying to yourself, well, I've done this short film. Yes, it's gone to Cannes, but that might be it. it. Nothing might ever happen. I think that's keeping your feet on the floor like that for everything, I think, is absolutely brilliant, really if I'm honest, because so many people can just, well, I've just got this huge thing that's gone to Cannes and I've been nominated and now nothing, nothing happens. But you you kind of build yourself up and you're constantly trying to weight yourself down. I think that's, that's, uh, that's a truthful and realistic place to be. Yeah, well, I think it's the kind of, the key to it, in a way. And I think what I've always, you know, when you do um, interviews sometimes and someone says like, oh, what, what role would you like to do next? Or like, what job would you like to do next? And I never quite know how to answer it because from those early days of doing the short film and getting my agent and everything, I was like, I don't really want to set myself massive, my expectations because I'm very much someone that's like, I'd rather um, be pleasantly surprised than yeah. feel like I've let myself down, like kind of uh-huh. setting those bars of like, well, I want to be in like a massive Marvel film this time next year and then kind of feeling that you're not meeting your own expectations. Um, I think that's just, it's just a losing game as soon as you get into it. Absolutely, because you can't plan there is no plan because the power nine times out of 10 is taken away from you. You, you don't make the decisions. Um, and I think, no, totally lost. Totally lost. Where I'm going. <laughs> we'll cut that bit out. <clears throat> is there ever, was there ever a part of you that missed the modeling days? Emma? No. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I think ten years is a long time. Ten years, <coughs> ten years in modelling is is a lifetime. Um, and I'd, I'd just reached the end of it. I don't know. Not one bit of it did I. No, it all seemed. It all seemed a very natural progression leading up to where we are now. Exactly. It's felt like that. It's felt really organic. Um, and. I will always be thankful to modelling for getting me to this point because I know I probably, I mean, who knows, in an alternative timeline where you'd be at this point without such and such. But, you know, I'll always I'll always be thankful to it in that respect. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it did set me up in a lot of ways for the world that I entered in terms of acting, yeah. you know. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I've just remembered. Yes, I hate that question too. When anybody says, 
What's the part that you'd really like to... Well, I don't know. It might come through on an email tomorrow. It's not like... It, it's it's a thing. It's just maybe the part hasn't been written yet. Yeah. Because you're constantly... You know, talk about being surprised. You're constantly surprised when someone comes in. And you go, what? Somebody thinks I could possibly do this. And then you go, right, now I've got to really try and show them that they're right and I can do it. Even, even though, you know, we're talking about doubt before. You just full of doubt going, I don't know if this is going to be possible but you've got to at least show or prove to somebody who thinks in their mind that you could be that person so that's the role yeah you don't know what it is that's so true I've never thought about it that way and that's so correct actually because like you said you audition for something like for me an example is playing Nancy so when they were basically like Danny Boyle wants to offer you this job of playing Nancy Sponge, and he's basically then saying, I think you can do it. I believe you can do it. You then go, well, I have to kind of, you know, prove that I can. Um, and that, I think, that gives you a bit of belief in yourself. You're like, well, if this person thinks I can do it, then maybe, maybe, yeah. And I think that yeah. then kind of builds the momentum of... Um, uh, going for it and, well because also then then you feel supported by somebody you know for instance you know somebody like danny boyle who believes and is supporting me then oh right i feel a i feel safe now and i can rise to the occasion yeah yeah, yeah. so what did you know about the sex pistols before you started filming because i i haven't finished it yet uh, and I'm halfway through. Ev, you know, of course, everybody's very young, so none of none of you lot were around when <laughs> the Sex Pistols were, were were storming the free trade hall. Uh, no, I was not, and I I was aware of the Sex Pistols. Had heard, you know, like Anarchy in the UK, um, and was aware very much of like all the iconography that was around at the time yeah. and. Kind of, and it's links and it's links with fashion. Yeah, but I never yeah. knew the link with fashion was so strong. Like I, again, I knew who Vivian Westwood was, but I didn't know how all these kind of dots connected um, in this like massive cultural pivotal movement that happened. Um, so I mean, it's so much fun when you get to do a job like that, and it's some, you're getting like a free history lesson. Yeah, and also there's there's quite a lot of research to do because it's all out there yeah i i always get a bit overwhelmed about research i don't know about you but i feel like it's like as soon as you do one google search you're like oh god suddenly i'm on like the 25th google search page and actually i think for me i can go too far and then need to go okay i know what i know i've done my homework i need to kind of shut that noise out now and just go on the script well, yeah, especially when you're doing something like that and you uh, there's a, there's responsibility when you're playing a real-life person, mm. uh, whether they be uh, living or dead. And also, when you're doing the research, especially in something like Sex Pistols, everybody seems to have their own story or, or, or their own version of events. You know, I just mentioned about the free trade hall. It seems that... 
everybody was at that gig at the Free Trade Hall when they first saw Sex Pistols, where actually it's a very, very <laughs> small place and it was a very small crowd, but apparently there was thousands of people there. Yeah. yeah you can. You, I suppose you can go too far. And at the end of the day, it all boils down to the Bible and the Bible is the script. Exactly that. And I was very aware as well. Like, I think when I first got the role... I felt much more a sense of responsibility, a huge weight of responsibility um, of playing a real person and really wanting to be respectful and kind of handle it quite delicately. But then when we got into rehearsals and started talking to Danny and Craig Pierce, the writer, it became very apparent that we were doing interpretations of these people. So they are based on a real person, but we don't know the conversations they were having behind closed doors. No. And do you know, we, you know, we've got stories of what relationships were like, but again, like you said, everyone claims to be at that gig. Everyone's got a story. Like what do we, yeah. it's so much of it is mythologized. Um, of course. Yeah. So it's kind of playing into that mythology. That's quite interesting. And also this isn't, uh, a kitchen sink drama there's a there's a and i mean this with total respect there's a slight slightly heightened cartoon-esque energy certainly to to the performances yeah it's it, it's it is quite up there and it maintains it yeah of certainly where i'm up to at the moment um that's what i think so great because i think I can only speak for myself, but they're quite big performances, but they were big characters and they're known uh-huh. in popular culture as being these, like, huge, big personalities. But then what I think is clever about Craig's writing is that they are very humanised and they're emotional and there's nuances. Um, and I think that's a really fun balance yeah. to play with. Yeah, it's a with. lovely balance. And the energy of right from the word go, it kind of rips along at such a, a fantastic roaring pace. Yeah. It just got, it grabs you by the scruff of the neck and takes you with it. It really you know, does. It really kind of works. At first I was um, concerned, not concerned, I couldn't imagine, this, you know, this story about the Sex Pistols and Disney sort of working together it was like just two polar opposite ends of the entertainment spectrum coming together for this story yeah i think a lot of people have like potentially not been able to quite marry those two up but then i think if you look at the team that are actually making it like danny directing it and exec producing it and craig and them just being so passionate about the project and it being based on steve jones's memoir and he's very involved and we had so many, like, Chrissy Hind will come in and talk to us. So, yes, Disney involved, but wow. we've actually got people from, you know, that time telling us the stories and um, being really involved. So it's still very much, like, got the essence of, of what it was. Yeah. I mean, you can't... We talked about um, power and planning being taken away from you um, with regards to, to jobs... Now, when things are released, again, we don't know when things are going to be released, but you've got two big shows both being released more or less at the same time. And, you know, we started off this conversation about, you know, about press and interviews. How's it been balancing, promoting both of these shows? Because, again, 
it very rarely happens. It may never happen again that you have to do two at the same time, but it is a balancing act. Yeah, I wasn't really anticipating it. It was quite funny, actually. My my amazing, wonderful publicist, Romilly, came to me one day and she was like, OK, so um, both premieres on the same night? And I laughed. <laughs> and I went, that's absolutely hilarious. She was like, no, Emma, it's a logistical nightmare. But I was like, I yes, I agree. But what a problem to have. Like, what, yeah. a, what an incredible position um, to be in. So instead of getting... And especially as someone who can be prone to just <laughs> varying on the side of, like, stress um, and worrying about stuff, I was like, actually, I just need to go the other way and think how phenomenal a position that is. And I don't know, it's been kind of good doing press for both at the same time because, I mean, I wouldn't get bored of talking about either anyway, but the shows are so different. It's not like I'm getting them mixed up. Um, no. So I found it quite refreshing to, you know, do an interview about Pistol and then do an interview about everything I know about love and kind of bounce between the two. And also then you're not promoting one show and are getting asked the same question by 27 journalists. Yeah. That you can sort of refresh yourself in, the, you know, the history of the Sex Pistols and move on to that and then go back to to talk about Dolly's work. Yeah, very much so. I think it keeps both fresh in my mind and interesting and, and um, yeah, I mean, there's not really many parallels. So it's, it does feel like two separate... Yeah. Two separate things just happening at the same time. But it's quite um, good. I think when you're in the momentum of it as well, that keeps you going. It's only been kind of in the past week or so where it's slowed down and it's hit me like a bus. And I'm like... Well, wow. that's it, it's what happens when you stop or when you stop working and then all of a sudden your body goes, oh, right, you don't have to be up at five o'clock this morning. You're going to get ill now. Yeah. And you're going to be... You, I'm allowing you to be ill. So as soon as you finish a job, that's when you get ill. It's amazing, it isn't it? Stop. Yeah, it's incredible, really. Yeah, it I, always happens. Yeah, I do think, like, I don't know, mind over matter is a thing <laughs> when you're, like, not giving yourself to... I mean, inevitably, sometimes you're doing a job and you do get sick because your your body just can't, uh, like, needs a, needs a rest. But, yeah, it's a weird... It's a strange psychological thing. I quite like to know, like, the <laughs> the science behind it. Well, it's like what they always say when you're on stage and as soon as the lights come up on stage, you'll be fine, you'll be looked after. Really? <laughs> by, by, by the space, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. I haven't been on stage, so if that ever happens to me, I will, um, I'll let you know if I experience that. Would, would, you, would you like to, Emma? Is that something? Because obviously we're talking about learning on the job throughout our conversation. That's completely different. That's something else altogether. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, the jobs I've had, like, like like careers I've had in a way, I've only ever learned on the job. Um, I think it's like a skill. I don't have many skills, but learning on the job is definitely a Learning on the job, yeah. I have, and I really relish it. And I'd absolutely love to do theatre. I mean, it would be quite terrifying, but in a good way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, again, it would be something small in a tiny theatre that, like, you know, your parents and a, a man and his dog comes to see. Um, but again, just to have a go. And also, again, you allow yourself to fail. Yeah, which I think is... Giving, one, you, yeah. 
giving yourself that freedom is incredible. Yeah, well, there's magical things that come out of that. And I think you're constantly kind of restoring a bit of faith in yourself of going, even though that didn't work, at least I'm capable of giving it a go and seeing what happens and seeing what the outcome is. And the experience that we had on Pistol as well, we had like two months of rehearsal before we got on set, which is absolutely unheard of. Wow. What Um, a luxury. Yeah, it was it was such a privilege, and the boys were doing band camp because there's no post on the show as well. Like they le- learned all their instruments, and um, we got to go in and just talk through scenes, talk through ideas of Danny, improvise together, um, like have a have like a bash at scenes, talk about what's working, what's not working, find little things. And I was like, if this is what you get to do in theatre, then I am totally up for it because it's just like. Being in a creative process with like-minded people. Um, and I just feel absolutely in my element when I'm doing that. Oh, so... I mean, you're right, that is unheard of. Two months of rehearsal. Two months, yeah. And then when you bounced on to Everything I Know About Love, did you ask how much rehearsal time you were going to get? <laughs> I was like, I only do jobs of two months rehearsal. Two months rehearsal. Minimum. Yeah, yeah. Someone, um, someone's not going to work. Someone's not working for a long time. Yeah. Um, It was so strange, actually, because I finished that job and about a week later had to go to Manchester. And they were like, right, we've got a week's worth of rehearsal, which basically meant, you know, you kind of do kind of like a little page turn, um, which is completely normal. That's what we're used to doing. What was really nice is me and Belle and Ali and Marley got in a room together when we first met in China said, right, I just want you to improvise as characters, which obviously was terrifying. Um, but as soon as she said go, you, you couldn't shut us up. So it worked really, really well. Yeah, I mean, it's all such a key part of the process is the casting, but especially for for you four that are so close you could finish each of the sentences. Um, so we, when you were auditioning, were you sort of in and out with lots of other different uh, girls for chemistry tests. Did that how it worked? Yeah. We, honestly, I, Craig, I went into the room so many times. <laughs> I should have just, like, set up shop and work in title. Um, and I think about the third time I went into the room, they said, right, we're going to do chemistry tests with, we're going to have three Maggies and three birdies and you're going to swap in and out. And I read with each birdie. And all the other Maggies were up with all the other birdies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'd never done anything like that before. I'd done chemistry tests before for, like, romantic leads. And you normally just yeah. go in with, like, one person, maybe another person. Um, but I'd never done them for, like, a friendship on screen before. And I thought that was a really nice thing to do. I would say, I would say that would be more important than a chemistry test for a romantic relationship. Because I think yeah. I've always, I always find them odd anyway, to be honest. But I think with a romantic relationship, it's like, well, we'll just act it. Yeah. We're not, we're not going to be in love. But as this, this special bond, especially the Maggie and Birdie, you know, mm. they can share a bed. They've been friends together since they were at school. That's got to be something very, very special. Yeah, and I think it's got to be like magnets. I think you kind of need two people that come together and it's just like, oh, we instantly get on. It's like that friend that you haven't seen for ages, but you start talking and it's like, I feel like I've known you forever. Um, So it's so great that they put so much like time and effort into 
into finding that. And um, yeah, I find auditioning with so many different people as well is so interesting. Just to see, I love seeing people in the room. I'd love to sit in a casting session of anything and just see what people do when they come into the room. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've never done, but I'd be, I'd love to be a fly on the wall and just see how people present themselves. Mm. But how how were you as the auditions sort of cranked up? Because there's a level of tension there because you're going, oh, I, I'm another step closer. I'm another step closer. And now you're in and out reading with all these people. Mm. You've got to really keep it together. But that's surely has to be hard um yeah say no craig it was absolutely <laughs> fine and no. i was cool as a cucumber <laughs> no problem it was a breeze um do you know what i think helps and you'll probably know this too i was working on another job at the same time so it wasn't like all my hopes and dreams were pinned on one job i had something else to think about and i think that is an absolute key sometimes yeah for it's a difficult balance isn't it of you care and you need to care and you want to care but you can't care too much because they'll know about it and they won't (laughs) give you the job because you look a bit desperate (laughs) really want the job but show them that you kind of don't want it, even though you really do i don't know it's very hard but you're 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 bang on the money yeah but, we, you know, in a completely zero arrogant way, that gives you some a strength when you're going into the room because you're, you've, you're, you've got something else. And also your brain is, is sort of there and your heart is there. So you can merge the two and balance it. And I suppose that's really Yeah, key. I think it gives you a lightness as well. Yeah. Um, and it is a bit of confidence of like, well, I'm working at the moment, so I know I'm on the right track. I know I'm doing the right thing. And I'm just going to go in and like give it my best shot. And yeah, going in the room so many times was interesting because it did get to the point where I was like, okay, I've been in a lot. So it's looking quite positive. But I didn't hear anything for about a week. And I was like, oh, someone else has obviously got it. It's gone. Um, yeah. It's gone. And I was like, I'll make my peace with it. And then I got a call from, Molly, my agent, being like, no, 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 they're going to get you back in the room one more time. (laughs) (laughs) And I went back in the room and something kind of, because I did want the job and I loved the script, but something clicked in my brain and I was like, there's not much more I can do. I'm not going to start doing something completely different. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But apart from that... Because obviously something's working. Something's working, but like there's not much more else I can do. So there was a part of me that kind of was like, they're going to give it to me or they're not. And they'll just decide, you know what I mean? There's a part of me that let it go in the respect of, if I got the phone call and they were like, you haven't got it, I would be like, okay, fine. So, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, because you just go, that again, I think that gives you lightness because you're going, I have done everything I can now. So if it doesn't go my way, yeah, I'll be bummed out 48 hours and I'll be a bit upset. But realistically, I couldn't have done anything more. I couldn't have showed them where I would want to go with the character. But also there's a great strength as well when you're going in the room all those times because you get to play about with the character and start building it there and then. So you've shown them from audition one to audition 
seven or whatever it was, the growth about where you would want to take it. Yeah, exactly. And also, that's why I love going in the room as well, because I like working with the director and I want to hear their yes. notes. And I was lucky that I had worked with China before. Um, so I kind of, I knew that we we worked well together. And um, so I like I like going in and knowing what the direction is. When I have to do a self-tape, I mean, I know exist for a reason but i have to direct myself and i'm like but i'm not a director yeah yeah long i'm a big campaigner for going back in the rooms because it as well as people you wanted to work with somebody and then wanted to work with you it's about excuse me it's all about complicity and working together mm-hmm. as a team because you're going to be on the floor together for 12 plus hours a day mm-hmm. so you need to have a relationship. Yeah, and it was so... uh, No, I was just going to say, for that very small amount of time of the day, the camera's rolling, the rest of it, you've got to be able to get on. And also, you need to make sure that you're not a dick and they're not a dick. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What if you go, I love the script, I love the character, then you go, oh my God, director's a total narcissist. Yeah. Yeah, it's so key. And you know, like, everyone knows as soon as you walk in the room what the vibe is. Like, I've definitely walked into rooms before and it's just, it's just, it's cold. It's basically dead. And you're like, I don't want to be in this room for 12 hours a day for six months of the year. No. No, thank you. So it's... not conducive to any sort of working relationship, is it? Yeah, and I think as much as they're auditioning you, you are auditioning them. And I think it's important for us to remember that as well because we have to want to be there as much as they want us to be there. Absolutely. And I've said that for so many years on this podcast. Yes, absolutely, because it is all about building a relationship and being sound. Mm-hmm. Be Just be sound and be open, yeah. you know? But it's funny you should say that about walking into the room and you're going, oh, I can feel it. Because you already had that as a model. Because when you would mm. go into the room and you go, oh, yeah, they really don't want me. You can just tell, can't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, You kind of absorb it. I mean, I'm very much someone that kind of, like, absorbs the the feelings and the mood that's around me anyway. So I think, yeah, and especially as actors, we pick up on it, like, instantly. The worst is when you go in and you've got, like, 10 pages for an audition and you know when you've sat down. I've had it before, I sit down, and in their mind... They're like, she could do the best, like, most Oscar-worthy audition, but I know it's not her, and you have to sit there and do your audition going, I know they've already decided it's not me. Yeah, yeah. I've, I have I remember years ago, I just left an audition because I, I knew, I read it once, and I just knew they, they would, did not want me at all, right? And they went... Do you want to do you want to read it again? Like they couldn't give a shit, and I just went. I just went. No, I'm probably just going to go. And they went okay. Like they were as happy for me leaving the room as I was to sort of breathe a sigh of relief. Just gonna. Mm. I'll just. I'll just. We're just wasting each other's time, really, aren't we? Yeah, that's a really good call, though, to go. Actually, no, I'm good. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm good. just gonna. I'm good. Let's cut our losses. It was really uncomfortable. It was really uncomfortable. So I just Strange, thought, yeah, isn't it? I'm just going to go. Um, Emma, are you good at watching yourself back? 
Um, am I good at it? <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> some people are just. I'm not. I'm not good. Interesting. As I in, I, I you don't it, do it. I, I, I very rarely do it. Okay. If I, I mean, I would like if I'm on the floor. If I'm at work, I would never watch a monitor. No. But if there's something technical, if there's a technical aspect, if there's some sort of um, dance within a fight scene and I'm not getting it right, then obviously stunt coordinator takes me back and goes, oh, this is what you're doing, but what you actually need to do is this. Yeah, no problem, because I'm not looking at it uh, with my sort of actor's head. I'm looking at it from a technical point of view. But, like, if I'm flicking around on the telly and I know something's on, like, there's no way I'm watching it. Really? I, no. I'm the same with you on set. I won't watch playback because I'm not in, it's going to take me out of what I'm doing. And I kind yeah. of don't want to really remember that it's being <laughs> recorded for telly. Um, but if it's technical, then it is really helpful and you can kind of decompartmentalize that. Um, I do like watching it. I haven't watched everything I've ever done. It kind of depends if it's something that I do want to watch anyway. Um, but I, I've learned not to rip myself apart because that's not fun and it's not helpful and there's no point. I do like it. Occasionally I'll see something and I'll go, oh, I quite like what I did there. And I quite enjoy that. Um, when I kind of don't, don't see myself and I see me kind of doing the acting thing, if that makes sense. Doing a bit of the Um, acting. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense, but it's very hard to not be critical. Yeah, I think I'm quite good at creating, like, a lot of distance. Like, I feel so detached from it a lot of the time. I feel like it's two different versions of me. Like, the, me watching it is a different version, is different from the person on TV doing it, um, which... I think that's it, very... I, bizarre. <laughs> no, I think it's very healthy, actually. Mm. Because I think... I know some people that do watch everything... Mm. And they're super, super critical. And they'll just, you know, as you say, rip themselves apart with what they've done. But then they've got to sort of put themselves back together because that's their job. And yeah. they've got to go and do something else. And lo and behold, it'll happen all over again. Mm, yeah, I'm not and really... And that's, that's not healthy. No, and I'm not interested in sitting there and ripping myself apart. And I just know that... I'm not going to get anything from it. There will be scenes I'll see where I'll go, oh, I wish I'd done that differently, but there's nothing I can do about it now. I did it like that, and I know that I'm constantly trying to learn and get better and just... um, but also just enjoy it. Also, I like watching stuff because I like seeing everyone else's work. I want to yeah. see how the DOP lit it and I want to see um, the editing and I want to see everyone else's performance and the bits that you're, you know, the scenes you're not in. I'm kind of much more interested in seeing seeing those bits. Oh, yeah. The, I'll, the scenes you're not in, definitely. What They're I'll the best ones. Those. They're <laughs> the best. Oh, look, with my work, it's always the best ones. Um, <laughs> Emma, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Uh, and long may you continue uh, growing and learning on the job. Oh, crazy. And it's been so much fun. Not taking a load of drugs in Liverpool. By the way, <laughs> we were just joking. We were just acting, taking drugs. No real drugs were consumed by myself or Emma Appleton. Okay? Correct. <laughs>
<laughs> Emma, take care. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care, Greg. And another episode is done. You see, some things never change, do they? Despite the renovation. Uh, I really couldn't think of a better guest than Emma. She's so bright and sparky, and I think she's got a fantastic future ahead of her. She's lovely, isn't she? I really hope you enjoyed that. Um, So welcome back to everybody, and also welcome to all the new listeners joining us. Um, So just to break it down for anybody that's new, what we do is seasons, and it's 20 episodes per season, and we do two seasons a year. So that's 40 episodes. Uh, It just seems to be more manageable. And my God, we have got some brilliant guests coming up. Um, But I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you anything, am I? Because we like treats every week, and that's what you're going to have. Every Thursday, hit subscribe. You're going to get a lovely podcast with somebody interesting, and we'll get to know them all together as a community, because that's what we do. Um. What else? So it's Thursday today. Uh, it's really good to be back. I've really missed it, I must admit. Um, I'm, when, when this is going out, I will, uh, I'll be in Glastonbury. I'm going to Glastonbury. Can you believe it? So if you're going to Glastonbury and you hear this on the way to Glastonbury and you see me, come and say hello. Um, it's going to be brilliant, I think. Well, I certainly think the weather's going to be fantastic, so that's going to help a lot, right? Um, So look, if you feel you can support us, go to patreon.com, patreon.com. Have a look at all our fantastic merchandise that is there. The T-shirts and the hoodies are perfect for festivals. Put one of those on at like nine o'clock when it's getting a bit chilly. Who's your favourite podcast? Two Shot Podcast, obviously. Bang. Also, you're helping support what me and producer Griff do. It's what we love. Uh, It seems to be going very well after five years. Uh, The guests that we get, I like to feel, aren't doing the podcast rounds. So you're not going to be hearing these conversations anywhere else. And that's kind of the point, you know. But if you can't support us now financially, do not worry. You're still going to get free podcasts every week. And speaking of every week, should we meet back here next Thursday? Maybe my hay fever will be a little less brutal. Thank you so much for downloading and subscribing. And until next week, I say some things never change. I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff, and this has been the opening episode of season 10 of the Two Shot Podcast with a little bit of added hay favour. You take care. The Two Shot Podcast was presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. The remix of our theme tune is by Stolen Valor. Cheers.